This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. How the U.S. handles various potential military engagements in Asia is of critical importance, but it's not clear what defense posture the U.S. will take as, for example, China exerts more pressure on Taiwan. Eric Gomez, Director of Defense Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, discusses how restraint gets applied to military strategy in Asia. The U.S. has a military presence around the world. We have security guarantees that we've extended to countries around the world, and we have specific strategies with respect to uh, countries around the world that we deem to be either threats or less than friendly. Uh, So what has been the U.S. defense posture with respect to Asia, you know, since World War II? Yeah. So against China specifically, the... Well, the the operational plans are all classified, so I don't know what those say. But in general, the overarching parts of U.S. defense strategy in Asia have emphasized the ability to operate without much interference or as relatively free and as flexibly as possible, um, pretty much as close to China's coast as possible. Uh, This often entails having the ability to do uh, what's called command of the commons, right? Air and sea, especially um, the ability to seize command of them, prevent others from achieving dominance of it, namely China, and that being the thing that enables all the rest. Uh, So that's, that's the foundational block upon which a lot of U.S. posture and strategy is built around. And this has been reiterated by Uh, the Trump administration and the Biden administration when they come to their uh, documents about the national defense and national security strategy. So how successful has the U.S. been at dominating the seas? Well, until recently, pretty successful. And I think this is the big question is how long can that be sustainable or sustained, especially when you're considering, right, the United States, if it comes to a conflict in East Asia, the United States is across the Pacific Ocean. China's right there. It's very difficult to kind of uh, to project what's called projecting power. Um, It's difficult to project power into another great power's backyard um, in a way that isn't very costly to yourself. Um, And if that great power has nuclear weapons in a way that reduces the risk of them reaching for those weapons, because you might have to be in the course of this conflict striking their home territory fairly aggressively to sustain your forces as close to them as possible. All right. So how should the United States change its posture? I mean, we have troops in South Korea. Mm -hmm. We have security guarantees for Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had what seemed to be a pretty friendly relationship with Hong Kong. And the United States, it seems to me, has several opportunities to back down. (laughs) Which I wouldn't call them. They're not real opportunities. They're 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 not. They're the opposite of saving face in terms of uh, the security that we've extended to other security guarantees or ambiguous security guarantees that we've extended to other countries. But it seems like there are a lot of points at which, at this point, given China's rise, that the United States would be placed in a situation where it will have to find a way to save face to avoid a larger conflict. Yes, and and this question of the how do you go about doing this is, is or how do you go about 
upholding or fulfilling those commitments is a really difficult one in Washington right now because you're kind of forced to make, you know, what sort of like a, a binary choice. And that's being a little bit reductive, but you can either try and lean hard into it or you can do something that's a bit more restrained. Uh, in the in June of this year, me and nine others uh, co-authored a, a big report published by the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft called Active Denial. Uh, it's it's long. It's like 320 pages long. Um, but it offers this alternative vision for U.S. defense strategy in Asia that is undergirded by a concept we call active denial. And basically what it says is the the more effective and less escalatory, and by that I mean less likely to cause a nuclear escalation, approach to doing this in Asia is the United States needs to think about having forces that are more distributed, uh, smaller in number overall numbers of ships and aircraft that are forward deployed in Asia, but that are more distributed, resilient, uh, that can kind of take an initial hit but not lose, um, and stay in the fight and emphasize things like anti-ship and anti-air weapons to and the, the the big goal is that shifting the U.S. from we have to have air and sea dominance to win to we just have to prevent the Chinese from getting dominance to win. And that's a much lower bar to clear. Uh, and so our strategy, and I'll, I won't bore you with all the details here, but the strategy that we lay out tries to get at that and tries to present a different approach to military strategy in Asia that is effective without, while also being less risky from the nuclear escalation side. A final point I'll make on it too um, is the report doesn't, so restraint and, and the Cato Institute and my own work in the past has, has questioned some of the bigger questions of do we even want to have these defense commitments at all? The report doesn't really do that. Uh, the report takes those commitments as a given and instead says, assuming that we have to uphold them, what is a better way to do that? Now, if you're a you know, full-on believer in restraint like I am, that's a bit less than, right? You know, it's, it's a little bit, it's not going as far in its recommendation or analysis maybe um, as some might like. But what's interesting is that it, half of those 10 authors, I at least don't come from that restraint world uh, and and don't really label themselves as that. But it's this, this interesting point of consensus where uh, restrainers like me and and folks like uh, some of my co-authors who who don't come from that perspective could line up and find an area of common agreement on, you know, this this there's a lot wrong with U.S. military strategy right now. There's a lot about it that isn't very good, and come to some agreement on ways that we would push it in the right direction. So what would that mean uh, broadly? That is to say, preventing someone else's dominance of air and sea versus having that dominance ourselves. Uh, what would that look like for, for example, U.S. forces in South Korea or the security guarantee that we've extended mm -hmm. to Taiwan? So for forces in South Korea and Japan, it would look like smaller contingents of U.S. ground troops, um, a focus of those that remain on 
fewer missions, specifically sticking to shooting down opposing aircraft or shooting at ships. Um, it would mean the Navy moving away from heavy carriers and instead building more light carriers that are um, smaller, like a bit less capable, but also you can build more of them for the same amount of money. And that means you can distribute them more. They're harder to take, fully take off the battlefield. Um, and you deploy a few of those forward in order to be on station, but then uh, you keep most of them out of the area to to come in later if needed. On Taiwan, our report assumes that you fight to defend it, right? that the U.S. would be involved in a conflict over Taiwan. We don't currently have any U.S. troops on the island, uh, with the exception of a small contingent of U.S. Marines to protect uh, the American Institute in Taiwan, the sort of de facto embassy. Um, so we don't really have like a combat force in Taiwan, and we wouldn't put one in there uh, in peacetime uh, or in conflict based off of this report's recommendations. Instead, what the U.S. would be doing is mostly operating from a distance, firing more long-range anti-ship, anti-air weapons to prevent the forces coming towards Taiwan from having an easy time of it. Uh, so that that's kind of the, yeah, that's the broad strokes. And uh, this this may seem obvious to a lot of people, but what is the upside for U.S. Uh, defense and foreign policy uh, of that strategy versus a more direct engagement? So I think there's there's a few potential upsides. In peacetime, I think it gets U.S. allies it lights it lights a bit of a fire under their butts to do more for their own defense, and this is something that bipartisan, you know, Democrats, Republican presidents have both wanted. Uh, they want allies to be doing more. They want them to be sustaining their own defense more. Uh, the prospect of having a smaller U.S. presence in Asia, I think, would provide the political and military incentive for the allies to put their money where their mouth is. Um, to their credit, I think Japan and South Korea have both been trying to, to be a bit better about this. Taiwan has somewhat lagged behind, and so but this could be an extra shot in the arm to help that process. Another upside is that uh, it creates some opportunities by reducing the U.S. forward presence. It creates some opportunities to engage with the Chinese in diplomacy to try and find some ways to manage crises, to manage escalation. Uh, and to hopefully tamp down a little bit a a worsening sort of spiral of uh, you know both the U.S. and China right now are doing things that the other doesn't like that they think are for purely like defensive reasons and just well we're just reacting what you do no we're reacting what you do doing this strategy and reducing the U.S. forward presence could provide this opening to actually get to a meaningful sort of coexistence state. <laughs> and then uh, finally, uh, another big benefit is that if, if you do end up in a conflict, if deterrence fails anyway, then I think this model of conflict provides for a much slower course of events. You, you slow down the pace of hostility and you the, with the point being you create some measure of opportunity for a negotiated settlement earlier. Does it mean that such a thing would happen? That's really tough. I think we're seeing that in Ukraine right now. Um, it's very tough to get 
two sides to kind of come to the table and agree to stop fighting. But it does create this strategy that we lay out, I believe, creates that opportunity, whereas the current strategy doesn't because you're sort of going to be gunning for one another's homelands as as fast as you possibly can. Um, So that's the hope. Eric Gomez directs defense policy studies at the Cato Institute. Please give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.